Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hello, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is back from parental leave, joining us from Somerville, Massachusetts. We are so happy to have you back, Mimi. Welcome. Thank you. So happy to be back. Mazel tov. Mazel tov. This feels like a slice of normal that I really appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can promise that this is going to be normal, but... <laughs> We're really happy to have you back. This month, we are talking about a YouTube special called Recipe for Change, Standing Up to Anti-Semitism. And for our second segment, we're talking about how the expected end of Roe v. Wade impacts the Jewish community and how the Jewish community can and should be responding. For that segment, we'll be talking with my good friend and former rabbi and a speaker at the MCJW Abortion Rights Rally, Rabbi Annie Lewis. Our first segment is this YouTube special. It features an incredible number of celebrities, including Dina Menzel, Alana Glazer, Rachel Bloom, Zach Posen, Michael Twitty, Michael Zagan, Michael Zagan, Mrs. Maisel, Ruth Reichel, I wasn't actually sure how to pronounce that, Rabbi Sharon Browse, Jared Greenblatt, who is the head of Jonathan, the ADL. There's a lot of Jonathan Greenblatt. No, Jared, Jonathan. Sorry. I know somebody named Jared Greenblatt, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so they get together in these three dinner parties in three different places. One is in LA, one is in New York, and one they just don't tell you where it is. And I was like, <laughs> why is it a secret? <laughs> um, also, weirdly, Rabbi Sharon Browse, who is a rabbi in LA, is at the New York dinner. And I was like, why did they do that? <laughs> They have these meals and then there's like a celebrity chef who cooks these meals, which honestly look amazing. Each one is Jewish. They're not random celebrity chefs and they are in some way Jewish inspired meals. And these are all Shabbat dinners, right? So, right. But I kind of think they're not actually on Shabbat. Um, But um, anyways, Shabbat inspired meals, (laughs) like kosher Mm -hmm. style. And they have like a conversation about anti-Semitism and also a lot of other things. Yeah, I have so many things to say about this, but I want to hear from from you both first. So Mimi, welcome back. Thanks. Give us the download. What if you were at one of these Shabbat Shabbat (laughs) scare quotes meals, what would you be thinking as you walked out of the door? I mean, oh my God. Well, I think it's impossible to talk about this YouTube special without talking about like how impressive it is to have the the people on it. It's just so star studded. If I were at one of these Shabbat meals, I would not know how to comport myself at all because there are so many celebrities and they're all so beautiful and the space is beautiful and the food is beautiful. That being said, it's a funny combination of feeling like a little bit corny and heavy-handed and also honest and vulnerable. And maybe actually my reaction of it as, oh, it's so corny is that I'm like uncomfortable with the vulnerability of these people who I don't actually know, but who loom large in in culture. Um, But yeah, so the structure of it is that everybody has this scroll and the, each scroll has a question. Questions are like, have you ever experienced anti-Semitism? Could the Holocaust happen again? What do you most love about being Jewish? And I, I don't know, that also felt very forced, but we needed that structure. It's so cheesy. It's like totally something that I like, I think maybe did do like literally exactly this at like a USY event 20 years ago. Like it yeah. is. So it's funny that they that they put on these like incredibly fancy meals in these gorgeous settings with all these celebrities. And then they ask them like literally the same questions that I got asked at the like eighth grade Shabbaton at Camp Shy. Like, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that to me, like one of my big questions was, who is this for? Mm-hmm. And there are is an element of this that I think is for eighth 
grade Jews or, or just young Jews generally to feel some sort of pride. It's not the most complex, but it certainly is a somewhat nuanced conversation about anti-Semitism and Jewish identity. I, I don't know. It, it's Zahav, I think you use the phrase feel good. It, it's feel good. And I think it's for young people. Mm. What do you think, Zahava? Yeah, I was kind of wondering that too, because it felt very inward facing. Like, hey, this is about Jews being in a safe Jewish space in which they can feel sh comfortable sharing their anxieties and their pride and their feelings about Jewishness with each other. And these happen to be, you know, sufficiently public figures that they're comfortable having that inward facing conversation on YouTube. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like it's addressed to people outside the Jewish community, which is, this is not a Jewish YouTube channel. This is not the first, they've did, they did something very, very similar with famous Asian Americans about the rise in discrimination and prejudice against uh, the Asian community in the United States. So it's not as though this is like a project of a Jewish publication or something where you would expect the main channel audience to be Jewish. Um, but I don't get the sense that this would be particularly stereotype shattering or educational for people outside the Jewish community. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, it felt very inside baseball to me. I could kind of see it resonating, like you said, with either young Jews or for Jews who live uh, far from large Jewish centers and feel sort of isolated from community and subject to a lot of stereotypes that... I could see that being valuable. Mm. I don't know, Mimi, if you were like encountering this growing up in Arkansas, would you have really liked it in that way? Yeah, I, I do think so. I mean, we can talk all day about how what representation means to especially young people, but there, yeah, there's a power to seeing like beautiful, talented people talking openly about an identity that you share. And I think that that is, I think that, your thoughts, Zahava, about it being inward facing. If you look at the YouTube comments, it's a lot of Jewish people talking about how proud this made them and how good they felt watching this and sharing a little bit of their own experiences. And maybe some of that is because this is getting promoted or covered in Jewish media sources, right? Like I found out about it through an article in JTA, which I think was originally from Hey Alma. But I don't I don't know how much this is breaking through outside, you know, channels of Jewish interest, despite the fact that it's not on a literal Jewish YouTube channel. I mean, I, I find it like it is very like affirming and warm and fuzzy feeling to watch these people have this conversation, in part because with like two exceptions, they are not professional Jews. Most of these people are not Jewish first in their personas. And I think that because of that, there is a limit to how substantive it can be, right? Because none of these people, except for Rabbi Sharon Browse and Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, are experts in anything they're talking about, except when they're talking about their personal experiences and feelings. And it's like nice to have these people talk about their personal experience and feelings. And like I said, it feels kind of affirming. But then they just like make sweeping generalizations or say things that are just not true or correct. <laughs> um, and the special doesn't correct them. There isn't a little, you know, they literally, this is a heavily edited thing and they include incorrect things and don't asterisk them for the viewer. I mean, they're not like hugely incorrect, but like Rachel Bloom says, I think a Hasidic person would not consider me Jewish. And I'm like, that is radically wrong. Like <laughs> of anybody who's going to consider you Jewish, no matter what you say or do, the most right wing Orthodox person is definitely in that category. They are much less likely to discount your Jewishness than people who are less Orthodox. Right. Or we were talking before the recording started. This is a minor thing about how somebody like just completely misattributes a quote and it's not like important in the grand scheme of things, but somebody who didn't know that that was wrong or didn't care that it was wrong actively edited into the special. It's not trying to do that kind of education. And so that made me wonder what kind of education it is, in fact, trying to do. And it seems like the message is all Jews are shaped by serious neuroses slash at least reflections about their identity. Uh, all Jews have some encounter with anti-Semitism and it makes them feel things. And that all Jews would like you to know that they are not that stereotype. Like that, that's really what I got as the upshot of this. Yeah. 
I also, I mean, I, I wondered at certain points if this was paid for by the ADL because there was a lot of conversation about the rise of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States and, and globally. So I think that was another big fact that they that they were trying to hammer home. Okay, um, this is only somewhat related to that, but there's a moment in the show where Moshe Kasher, who's a comedian, is explaining the myth about Hasidic Jews having sex through a hole in the sheet. And Jonathan Greenblatt, who should absolutely know better, is like, is that true? And it's like, wait, no, wait. <laughs> I hope that you were just being polite, but... I thought you were saying that about Moshe Kasher's explanation for the origin of the myth, not for the fact that it is a myth. Like Moshe Kasher had an explanation. Oh, yeah, okay. I know. I'm just saying, but I was like, Jonathan Greenblatt, is it not your job to know this stuff? Like, I don't know. It felt, I was like, I hope you're just like faking to be polite because otherwise this is very awkward that you didn't know that. I just found Moshe Kasher's explanation about the true origins of the myth, which that it had something to do with tzitzit being sort of questionable and that Jonathan Greenblatt was being polite and like giving some credence to this like rando theory that he was proffering. <laughs> oh, I don't think it's a rando theory. I've heard it a million times, but I also think where has Jonathan Greenblatt been that he hasn't heard it a million times? Or why did he think it made any sense to be like, oh my God, that's so amazing that you know that. Like, whatever. It was so awkward. I was like, ugh, ugh. Thanks for um, busting. <laughs> okay. I agree that like I found myself coming away from this being like, yeah, what are we doing here? Like, what is the goal of this? And it does seem to be a very internal goal, not an external goal. And for that reason, I found myself feeling gross <laughs> about this whole exercise. Like, I was like, these people are not good at talking about this. And some of the things that they're saying are incorrect. And this also seems immature. Like, it's a just very immature, very base level approach to everything that they touch on. At no point did they get beneath the surface level on anything, which like Zahava said, like, these are not professional Jews. I get it. But on the other hand, it's like, well, why are we listening to them? I don't get what we're trying to do with this conversation because I don't think that they talk about standing up to anti-Semitism. They don't even talk about what that should look like. So there's these three conversations and then there's like a bunch of other things going on in this, in this special. There's this one part where Rachel Dratch is like interviewing like people on the street, although it's very obviously like planned ahead of time. It's not just like stopping people on the street. You mean every person walking down New York City is not a Jew standing next to a non-Jew of a different race? <laughs> Ready to speak eloquently. Well, that's the thing that was so awkward about it is it's a Jew and a non-Jew come together to be asked about anti-Semitism. And what happens in every case is the Jew is like, this anti-Semitic thing happened to me. And then the non-Jew is responsible for being like, that's terrible. All people should be treated the same. And it's just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, who, why is it their job to do what? Like, it was so weird to me. And yeah, it was like super awkward. There's then a like long <laughs> animated segment about Abraham Joshua Heschel. Hosted by Skylar Ashton talking about his personal inspirations <laughs> from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know who that person was, but um. <laughs> He's in the Pitch Perfect movies. Oh, yeah. He was, okay. Yeah, he was uh, in um, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Was that what that TV show, TV show was yeah. called? Yeah, okay. So, yeah. well, I, he looked vaguely familiar, but I was like, okay, somebody's telling me about Rabbi Heschel now, I guess. <laughs> and then it was like, also, like, just like sidebar, like, poor Rabbi Heschel. He did so many things in his life. And, like, all anyone ever wants to talk about is that he marched on Selma with MLK, which granted was great and a big deal. But like the man did other things and like he said other things besides I was praying with my feet, although crucially he did not say the thing about Shabbat that somebody says in the special. I don't know. I was just like, okay, so now it's time for Abraham Joshua Heschel story time. And then 
there's a part at the end where there's like people sitting on like individual Jews. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded really weird when I said it, individual Jews. There's like one person reading from a card of something that somebody else wrote, touching on anti-Semitism and then responding to it. But it's like, we, there's no preface. So it's like, why is this person reading? I don't know. It's very confused. I found it very confusing because I was like, did this person write it? And then why are they reading it in this other voice? Whatever. It's very weird. That was the like, non-celebrities care about this and experience this too moment. Like there are real people involved. Notably, that is the only moment in which anyone Orthodox shows up in this entire hour long special. Right. Well, okay. That brings me to the other thing I wanted to say, which is like all of these people have a lot to say about anti-Semitism-ish. Actually, they don't all have a lot to say about anti-Semitism, but they they do have a few things to say about anti-Semitism, but they just like gloss very quickly over the fact that like there is a specific group of very publicly identifiable Jews who experience anti-Semitism in a very specific way more frequently now. And like, what should we do about that? None of that even comes up at all. And I was just like, I don't <laughs> like, I mean, whatever, not that anything that any of those people said could possibly be relevant for <laughs> somebody living in Borough Park who maybe gets harassed on the street. Like they are not going to be helped by these fancy Shabbat and scare quotes dinners. But like, it was just like such a, I was like, I don't understand what the point of this is. But in addition to that, I was so frustrated by how often they like stuck their foot in their mouth. I happened to watch like the first 20 minutes with my daughter who's seven. There was like a conversation about like, are Jews white or not? And <laughs> the table that was talking about this had Michael Twitty, who is a black Jew at the table. And they were having this whole long conversation about like, are Jews white or not? <laughs> and my daughter, who is seven, <laughs> was like, I'm Jewish and I'm black. And I was like, I know. <laughs> like, it was just one of those things where I was like, these people like literally cannot see what is right in front of their face. It was so weird. And like, well, several of them acknowledged out loud the limitations of what they were saying, but went ahead and had the conversation anyway. I think that that's actually like perfectly emblematic of, of what kind of conversation this is. There's a lot of like, well, of course, I'm talking only about this very limited sphere or my experience, or we're only talking about Ashkenazi Jews, but let's go ahead and talk about Ashkenazi Jews. Like there's, right. mm -hmm. so like there is this like limited kind of diversity in the group. Like across the three tables, there's a couple of non-Ashkenazi Jews, a couple of people of color. There is one trans person. Um, and there are like quick nods at those diversities in the moment, um, but they're much more united in their experience of anti-Semitism than they are different, right? So all of these people are uh, affluent and not particularly observant and don't look particularly identifiably Jewish most of the time. I mean, you can go like one of them keeps making jo jokes about his nose, but meaning like, but he doesn't wear a strimal. Like, right. I, I promise <laughs> you. Um, and so like all of them have some acquaintance with anti-Semitism, but it is almost entirely some level of verbal nastiness or online harassment. Not to say that those things are, are OK or to minimize them, but there's nothing here with like physical or material consequences. And there are people in the United States right now experiencing anti-Semitism with physical and material consequences. Right. And I felt like that was notably missing. They were saying things like, you know, violence in synagogues made me feel scared in my non-synagogue, non-identifiable Jewishness. And that I, it felt like a huge blind spot to me. Um, and I know that it's kind of part of my role to be like, where are the Orthodox people sometimes? But I'm like, where are the Orthodox people? Like, <laughs> No, I was like, this is a really weird conversation to be having without somebody to represent. Like, Well, especially because I feel, I think the one example of what it means to stand up to anti-Semitism that they shared was Julian Edelman, a yes. football player who like invited us. I don't even know which sports person they were talking about, athlete, sports person. 
<laughs> yeah, they also, they didn't, they used the name of the Jewish guy, but not of the person who was not Jewish, who said the anti-Semitic thing that got invited right. to a Shabbat dinner. An athlete said an anti-Semitic thing. Julian Edelman said, you know, why don't you come to my house for a Shabbat dinner and we can talk about what Judaism is, what anti-Semitism is. And and that was really like touted as what a like loving embrace of this person and sharing knowledge. But that's not going to work for people whose lives are Zahava, as you said, physically and materially impacted by anti-Semitism. That's well, it's just it's not a scalable solution. It's not like right. we can just all individually invite an anti-Semite over for Shabbat <laughs> dinner and then anti-Semitism <laughs> will be over. Like, first of all, that wouldn't work. And second of all, you know what I don't want at my Shabbat meals? Anti-Semites. Like, <laughs> I just like, I don't, I, I, I applaud people who are like, I'm down for this. I'm going to go for it. And like, I, I will be happy to have some awkward people at my Shabbat meal. And I certainly have in the past and I'm sure I will continue, but I'm not going to be like anti-Semites. The challah is here. Like, that's just not, I don't know. I, I kind of resent that that is the way that people like to spotlight the solution of the problem, because it just makes it a very individual, like we can solve this by just like being nice people and reaching out to people who are terrible. And it's like, that does work if the person is like uneducated and interested in like knowing better and at all willing to be like, Ooh, sorry, I hurt your feelings. But if, if, this person is not like that, which is, it turns out lots of people in this country, like that's not a solution. And even if it was like, we have the problem of there being a lot more of those people in places where there are not very many Jews. (laughs) And so even if we were going to invite them to our Shabbat meals, what are we going to like fly them from one like city to our cities? Like this is not, (laughs) I, as, as a logistical person, I have some notes. (laughs) (laughs) To me, the most powerful sentence, and it was not dwelled on, but the most powerful moment in here is where Rabbi Sharon Browse, who is, of course, a professional and very visible uh, Jew, right, Um, says, most of the hate mail and death threats I get have an element of both anti-Semitism and misogyny. Mm -hmm. And just to have the one person who really is out there about their Jewishness, and that is the core part of their public-facing identity, to be able to use the phrase, most of the hate mail and death threats I get, (laughs) that says more than most of, you know, than most of the rest of this hour-long special. And I thought that that was important and deserved a little bit more. I think just the other thing that we haven't acknowledged out loud here, but isn't at all surprising, is there's a thread here also about some of these people being Holocaust descendants and the intergenerational trauma of that and how that informs the way they experience both their Jewishness and anti-Semitism today. And that struck me as, okay, yeah, this is actually a real thing that no matter how rich and powerful and, you know, prominent and successful you are, if you are a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, that's going to follow you around and make you feel a certain way and make you feel a certain lack of security, regardless of your other great fortune. So again, not news to me, right? So that raises the question of who is this for? But I I think that Mimi is onto something with this really being for young Jews and or disconnected Jews. You know, for all that we're like picking this apart and for all that I was like annoyed by moments where it's like, the reason we braid challah is to weave together what is and what could be. And I'm like, okay, but come on, people. Like, is that the reason we braid challah? Like, anyway, um, (laughs) <laughs> the right. one reason. So it's amazing, actually, how like secretly Hasidish all these people are, that they're all just sharing little <laughs> vortlach of like nice ideas that they once heard as the reason for something. <laughs> but, but Oh, my God. I love the idea that uh, these people are all secretly Hasidish. In like the old school sense, not in the, oh not my in the modern, um, you know, Satmer sense. Um, but anyway, like. <laughs> For all that there were moments like that that got on my nerves, I I actually did kind of find this warm and fuzzy making for myself. And there are people who are more in need of that than I am about their Jewishness. So I give it that that amount of credit. There's one more little strand that I just wanted to point out that I thought was like very interesting. And it was like, at one point, Rachel Bloom is talking about how during the war in Gaza, she got a lot of, I don't know if it was like hate mail or death threats or what, 
connecting her to Israel because she's Jewish. And she was like, I've never been to Israel. I have no connection to Israel. I think that might have been Alana Glazer. Yes, you're right. Sorry. And she's sitting next to Ana Admoni, who's an Israeli chef, who was like, I do. And it was just one of these things where it was very clear that like Alana Glazer was like ready to be like, I wasn't on board with that. Let me disclaim Israel right now. Right. Exactly. And like the person sitting next to her was like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) So I, (laughs) I, I just thought like it was very like this kind of thing honestly only works as a warm fuzzy if you are willing to not talk about Israel at all and not have anybody who is Hasidic present who might make people feel uncomfortable or say even more uneducated things than they already did. If young Jews see this and they get the warm fuzzies, like I am fine with that. But like, I feel like a real hearty pooper for saying this, but I did look at this and just think like, God, we need to do better. Hmm. We must be able to do better than these people being spotlit as somehow talking about this in any way that was at all helpful when like they didn't, they came up with no ways to stand up to anti-Semitism. The only people in this special about Jews supposedly standing up to anti-Semitism who said anything about how to actually stand up to anti-Semitism was the like non-Jews in the person on the street interviews with Rachel Dratch. Like they were the people who we relied on in this special to say how one could stand up to anti-Semitism. And to me, it's like, okay, <laughs> we got some work to do, but that's not news, I guess. But maybe that, uh, you know, that's work that can't be done by this YouTube special. Right. And that is doing something else. Yeah. Maybe its entire goal was to get you to the link to the ADL at the end of the video. Yeah. Right. Well, I didn't click the link, but (laughs) Um, perhaps. But like, okay, somebody just go to Jonathan Greenblatt's house and like tell him some stuff because he appears to still need some few things cleared up for him. (sighs) And bring him black eyed pea hummus because that sounds amazing. I want that now. (laughs) I don't know. It's like black eyed pea hummus is just like going very close to being like around the bend towards the million flavors of hummus that people find very upsetting. Dessert hummus. Right. Strawberry shortcake hummus. I mean, setting aside the fact that all of the meals were deeply non-kosher, I would like all of the dishes that they served, you know, separate from each other. Right. Yes. Did look good. Yes. This is a total aside, but I did not know that Michael Zegan was actually Jewish. Like Rachel Brosnahan is not Jewish. Aunt Tony Shalhoub is not Jewish. Right. I don't know the name of the actress who plays Midge Maisel's mother, but I don't think that she's Jewish. I mean, right. I, I guess the entire Maisel family is Jewish and not Midge's family of origin, actor wise. It's weird. Um, I have to tell you the funniest Abraham Joshua Heschel story. <laughs> so I read this book. Oh my gosh, it's called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Do you guys know who Glennon Doyle is? Oh yeah, I read that. Yeah. I, I'm like aware of this, but I don't remember why. Who is she? So she was like an evangelical Christian mom blogger. And she wrote a book called Carry On Warrior about like overcoming an eating disorder and a drug addiction, I think. I haven't read it. And then she found out that her husband had been having affairs and she wrote a book called Love Warrior about like staying with him after she found out that he had affairs and Love Warrior came out. And as part of the like release for Love Warrior, she went to a book event and she met Abby Wambach, who's a um, soccer star and fell in love with Abby Wambach and divorced her husband and married Abby Wambach like in the space of a year. And So she writes this book about staying with her husband. Then she divorces her husband for a woman. So then she writes this new book, Untamed, about being that, all of that happening. Yeah, whatever. Living your truth, et cetera. In the book, she has this chapter about how, like, she and her kids are, like, not marchers. Like, they're not about, like, about explaining racism to her kids and talking about racism with her kids and, like, what's the right thing to do. And she talks about racial justice and she says 
someone once said going to a march is like praying with your feet. And I was like, oh, wow, poor Abraham Joshua Heschel. Like, the only thing ever. I didn't even Google it, lady. No, it was literally, it was like, that's so sad. And then at the end of the chapter, she's like, my family's not marchers. <laughs> it's just like, so she goes through this whole thing. And then at the end, she's like, but we don't do that. It was just like, cool. <laughs> That is so sad that his, first of all, his work has been like constricted to just that one moment in his life. And then somebody couldn't even remember. I mean, it like, was him. I, why would this evangelical <laughs> woman know who he is? Like, but it's just like the fact that neither she nor apparently anyone in any stage of publishing was like, let's Google this to find out who someone once said is. <laughs> okay, cool. There was, I went to a summer camp once and the t-shirt had like some, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But it was attributed to MLK. (laughs) Okay, maybe he said it too. I don't know. Oh, man. (sighs) All right. Zahava, will you kick off our second segment for us? Sure. Okay. So for our second segment, which is a few clicks less giggly than our previous segment, uh, I'm assuming, we are discussing what seems to be the impending Supreme Court ruling striking down Roe versus Wade and its successor cases and finding that there should be no longer constitutional protections for abortion rights in the United States. This massive change will have huge implications for Jews and for the country as a whole. Uh, we are lucky to be joined by Rabbi Annie Lewis, who's the rabbi of Sharei Torah, a conservative congregation in Gaithersburg, Maryland, to discuss what the Jewish response should be. Rabbi Lewis was featured as a speaker at the National Council of Jewish Women's recent rally for abortion justice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So just to get things going, um, assuming that we all have a baseline of fact here, for those of us who uh, weren't at the rally, I'd love to hear what you hoped people would take away. What what was your um, what was your top line message that you really hope people would take away from your remarks? I was hoping that um, from the rally as a whole, people would be committed to doing everything we can to guarantee access to abortion and to reproductive health care because I believe that abortion is health care. And in my remarks, uh, a big goal that we had also for the rally and in my remarks was to take away some of the stigma around abortion. I shared with with the crowd that like one in every four people who can become pregnant, I too have had an abortion. And I wanted people to know that rabbis have had abortions. Everyone loves someone who's had an abortion, right? We We talked about abortion. I've never said or heard the word abortion so many times, right, out in public, which felt powerful um, because I think there there is stigma and it's uh, really important to, to shift the conversation as we are trying to not only protect access to abortion uh, for those who are able to access it, but to expand access to this vital healthcare. I have been having a lot of big feelings, as we say in my house, about um, about the the week and about what this country is starting to look like. And I'm wondering what, like, what was the vibe at the rally? What was the kind of feeling? And and where are your feelings um, on this at this point? What was amazing about the rally is that people flew from different parts of the country. People got on buses at four in the morning in New Jersey um, to come down to D.C. to stand with the Jewish community. And another really important part of the morning was that not only Jews spoke at the rally, but uh, people from other faith traditions, Black and brown women, um, people of color, Jews of color, and as we think about also who is most impacted by this stripping away of rights, NCJW has been working really closely with organizations supporting Black and brown women um, and or people who can become pregnant, trans folks, 
people with disabilities, right? All, all those who are going to be impacted, who already are by this stripping away of access to abortion and reproductive health care. And so that was powerful to all be there in coalition. And I think a number of people spoke also about abortion access for the Jewish community as an issue of religious freedom, because according to Jewish law, abortion is not only permissible in certain cases, but it is mandated, right? It's, it's necessary if the life of the pregnant person is at risk. And so it was important to lift that up as well, that this is an issue of religious freedom. It was powerful because NCJW is, is launching a national Jewish abortion fund, because as we think about what is the ask, like how, uh, you know, and folks are expecting the decision to come down probably around July 9th, and there will be mass mobilizations planned and other actions at that time. But a big part of what the Jewish community can do at this point to be in solidarity with those who are most impacted is to, to start a fund, right, to, to raise money so that people will be able to travel folks at NCJW and right and other other places, the Guttmacher Institute are, are you can look at these maps and they're like really terrifying as to where already access to abortion is so limited and then so many states have trigger bans in place so that if Roe is overturned, right, like many states, like the whole map basically turns orange, except Illinois, you know, is green and the coasts are have some blue you know, one of the ways that we can can most show up is by organizing not only people, but organizing money and starting to, to raise the funds. There was an ask, right, for folks to, to contribute to those funds. I feel like I've seen in social media all over about this overturning Roe is an infringement upon my religious rights as a Jew, where my religion could say that it's mandated for me to get an abortion if my life is at risk. I guess I wonder, like, is that the best route to go? Like, why do we have to talk about it as a religious right? Why can't we just talk about it as like a really important option for people and uh -huh. a really like a crucial part of women's health care? Right. So it's sort of like leave religion out of it altogether. Yeah. 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 The human right, the the dignity of um, folks who could become pregnant and the autonomy and the agency to make choices. Exactly. And so Dr. Michal Rauscher has done some really interesting work in writing on this as well. And I got to learn with her um, a few nights before the the rally on Zoom. And she gave a whole, um, she or a, a class about like moving from justification to justice. And actually she says, like, according to Halakha, she doesn't actually believe, like there are things there, you know, that, that can help us. But she says like in terms of a framework where it's about justice and it's about access and it's about abortion as healthcare. Um, she says, you know, the halakha, the halakhic sources don't necessarily get you all the way there. Right. Mm -hmm. So she's like, maybe that's not the, the route we want to go. When I spoke at the rally, I talked about a piece of text, um, from the Talmud from Masechet. Yoma, there's a story about a person who's ill who says that they cannot fast on Yom Kippur and their doctor says that they should be able to, according to the rabbis, right? We trust the patient because they know their body best. And the Talmud brings a verse from Proverbs, Lev yodea marat nafsho, right? The heart alone knows the extent of its pain and then the end of the verse also in Proverbs is that no outsider can fully share in its joy. Hmm. So we sort of took that piece that each one of us is the one and only expert on our embodied experience. So I wanted to bring that, you know, that Torah, that text to it. But yeah, I hear what you're saying, Mimi. I think, do we want religion to enter the conversation when we feel like other people's interpretations of their religion are, are completely clouding? the civil rights and human rights. But I think that's why it's important, actually, is because it makes it clear how much this is really about biasing those people over anyone else. That it, it isn't really about, like, religious, that it's a religious thing, that people who, like, believe that abortion is murder, that that is so important that nobody else can get an abortion. It's like, 
well, if their thing is so important, how come my thing (laughs) isn't important? Mm -hmm. I agree that like, that is not the message that works for me, but I think it is important to point out the hypocrisy in saying that like, oh, you know, life begins at conception is a thing that the Catholic church believes when it's like, okay, but I'm not Catholic. So why, why does that need to be applied to me? I don't think it's a justification that I would choose for why abortion should be legal generally, but it is, I think, an important point to bring up to highlight like so much of what's problematic in this issue is that like it clearly isn't actually about religious rights. It's clearly about controlling women and people with uteruses. And so if we cared about religious rights, then we would address this in a totally different way. But that's not really what this is about. I think it's there's also a dimension of the political conversation that assumes that religious people basically hold the same political views as the Christian right Right. and collapsing religious perspectives on political issues into one thing, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that drives me most thoroughly up the wall because I, I telegraph my religiosity pretty clearly to people who are looking and they therefore assume certain things about my politics. And I think that abortion rights are one of the core areas where those expectations um, bump up against the reality. And it's, I think, important to say those things out loud. It's it's a different kind of the destigmatization that you were talking about earlier, I think, that we're not just destigmatizing the idea that actually a- abortion is common, but also that like you can believe in a proactive, affirmative, non-apologetic way that access to abortion is a good in society, and you can believe that from a religious standpoint. There's a, a few years ago, there was a really great piece in The Forward it's called My Dark Secret, Orthodox Women Reveal Their Abortion Stories. And it's just like a bunch of different stories directly from Orthodox women about reasons that they decided to have abortion. Um, And in some cases, it was rape. And in some cases, it was issues with the fetus. And in some cases, it's just not being ready. And I really think it's really so important. And it made a big impact on me to read these stories, which are, are linked in the show notes. Because I think that it is easy to imagine that there are like communities that are not particularly touched by abortion. And that's just not true. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, it's not true of the evangelical community. It's not even true of like people who are like pro-life activists. Like some of them have had abortions um, and will have abortions in the future. So I, I think it is really important to just be aware that there's so many different kinds of reasons that people make these decisions and it's just so not a good idea to take it away. I just, I can't, I, I'm, I think I'm still in some serious denial about this happening. Yeah, no, it's, it's really distressing. I wanted to share also like a little bit of learning and a a reshaping sort of mind opening that I had in preparation for the rally. Um, like I mentioned, I taught this piece of text from the Talmud and from the book of Proverbs, and then also the opportunity to, to sing with Yosef, with, with my partner, Naomi Less from, from Lab Shul. So we started to write a song and we talked a lot about choice, sort of some of that phrasing of my body, my choice. And then the amazing Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, I was kind of like running by her, the draft of what we were going to do. And she really like helped open my mind because she said, you know, that the abortion justice movement as, as a whole has moved away from the word choice. Right. And to me, like I had spent a lot of my life sort of like thinking about that. And of course it's obviously valuable, but, but she said, you know, not everybody has a choice and not everybody has the same choices. And that this was something that NCJW leaders, like a critique they heard from. BIPOC leaders that let's say like being undocumented or living in poverty or dealing with systemic racism or being incarcerated, right? Those things take choices away from people. And so it was sort of the the shift to talk about access, um, mm-hmm. not because we don't want choice. Like, of course, we should all have choice, but but that the abortion justice movement at this time is really the focus is on access. So that was 
definitely some important learning for me in the process of preparing to speak at the at the rally and also hearing the words and voices of the other speakers. That's really interesting. I think often about how choice and this applies for me in a lot of different areas, but that having choices is a privilege. And I, I think in some ways that's what you're underscoring. Like, yep, there are just a lot of people where there aren't choices that get to be made. I mean, what's about to happen is even fewer choices. Right, right. I was recently at a Shabbat dinner with a friend who was pregnant with an IUD and got very, very sick and had her body miscarried the fetus. But many people in this situation, you have to have an abortion. And we were talking about sort of the experience or the fear that some doctors might be scared to do what is medically necessary, right? And it just, it, it made me think to, I know I'm using sort of old language, but about choices and that doctors also might feel or providers might feel that their choices are being stripped from them. Well, if you read the Roe versus Wade decision, I don't know if, if any of you have ever actually read the decision, but it's mostly about doctors hmm. and not people carrying pregnancies. Mm. Harry Blackman, who wrote the decision, who originally was going to side with the other side in this particular case and essentially got talked into it by his wife and daughters, spent the summer writing his draft opinion in the library of the Mayo Clinic. His previous job before joining the Supreme Court was as general counsel for the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> if you read Linda Greenhouse's book, Becoming Justice Blackman, which is just, you know, sort of a fascinating biography, there's obviously an extensive section on his authorship of the Roe versus Wade decision. Um, and the case was held over for re-argument a second time. And so he had sort of a summer break in which to work out his thoughts. And he wrote the decision in the library of the Mayo Clinic talking to a lot of doctors. And a lot of it had to do with the professional decision-making freedom of the doctors. Mm -hmm. There is a really valuable piece, I think, uh, recently in Slate, whose author I can't bring to mind at the moment. She's a women's health care provider in Alabama. Um, we'll share a link in the show notes about her experiences in Alabama and how many doctors, how many emergency rooms are turning away women in the midst of active miscarriage for fear of being later accused of having abetted an abortion and having their medical license stripped from them and what it means for women to have so little access to reproductive health care because of the environment of suspicion and uh, prohibition that surrounds various kinds of intervention in pregnancy. I appreciate the need to eliminate stigmas. I also think that there should be space for privacy, and I don't love the way the expectation has become that women need to trot out their traumas in order to justify their activism. And so I actually appreciated that there was a doctor writing this piece and that we and that hearing from the perspective of the provider who's encountered dozens or hundreds of patients in these circumstances can share those stories in ways that are really powerful as well. Absolutely. I really appreciate you naming that. And it's something I struggled with too, you know, before speaking at the rally and what to share and what not to share. Right. Like why does it then fall on? And it's powerful. And there was, you know, this amazing organization that we testify and, you know, people sharing powerful stories and Yes, yes, privacy as well should be. We should be able to to have privacy, like you said, not have to to sort of like be re-traumatized. Yeah. Or justify our decisions to anybody else. This is a hard time. One of the things you said earlier, um, Rabbi Lewis, was about the fact that if you are just sort of reading Jewish legal texts, they may not get you all the way there to the framework of, of reproductive justice that you're looking for. And I think that that's important to acknowledge out loud because as, uh, as a halakhically observant person, as somebody who's fairly traditionally observant under a Jewish legal framework, I look at the activist line on this that Jewish law permits and sometimes requires abortion as both true and also hugely insufficient as an expression of what Jewish law actually thinks about abortion. And that the you know, the response on this and the source material on this is actually really complicated and not particularly inclined towards an overall permissive framework, right? There's a lot of individual permission being given in individual circumstances, but the implication in the traditional legal text is that permission should be sought 
or that, you know, you need to think about this in constrained ways in a way that I find difficult. I want to recommend that people check out another article that we'll share in show notes from the forward in 2018 by Rabbi Ellie Fisher called What You're Getting Wrong About Abortion and Judaism, which is, I think, a good look at some of this source material and the complexity around it and the nuance and the way actually many of the halakhic authorities didn't want to issue proclamations about when you can and can't get an abortion because they wanted there to be room for individual decision making. They wanted there to be room for nuance. And... On the one hand, that is not like a big, expansive embrace of the idea of abortion as an affirmative good. On the other hand, I think that that halakhic complexity actually really squares with my experience of pregnancy um, and the fact that that pregnancy is an incredibly complicated physical and emotional condition to be in. And the fact that Judaism is nothing if not a tradition that leaves infinite room for nuance and shades of gray, right? The entire Talmud is like, but what if you were in this very slightly different situation? How would that change everything? And the fact that these blanket rules are like, oh, before six weeks, but after six weeks, this is an entirely binary thing that is false to the point of violent and feels very antithetical to the way Jewish texts approach decision-making. And I think that for me, the complexity that's in the Jewish sources squares so much with my experience of the complexity of being pregnant. And those things together absolutely reinforce and underscore and heighten my 100% commitment to abortion rights because to have a legal framework here is always going to do violence to the nuance of the situation. To have a secular legal framework is always going to do violence to that. And so the ability to approach this as a unique situation with infinite shades of gray and nuance and a decision that you yourself are making considering all those things is both important, vital, and also to me very Jewish. And I, yeah, I appreciate that so much. And I do feel like Jewish law is entirely clear that the the life of the pregnant person takes priority. Like that is hundred percent, right? Clear. And that when life begins is not at the moment of fertilization, which I think there was like some new legislation pitch trying to say that. Like, how do you even anyway? If you have any embryos frozen in Oklahoma, move them now. Right. (laughs) Not a joke. It impacts all kinds of of reproductive health care. Right. Whereas Jewishly, it's not until the fetus, you know, would emerge. Uh, That's when life begins when it like a baby is out and breathing, right? Um, there's so much more to say about this. And I suspect there are more conversations that we're going to be having about it. But it sounds like um, some takeaways for us are, if you have frozen embryos in Oklahoma, get them out. There's going to be a Jewish abortion fund. And certainly if you have access to... Um, Local lawmakers, this is a good time to, I mean, it's always a good time, but especially important time to make your voice heard. Um, You know, if you're in a state that isn't going to have access um, to abortion anymore after Roe Falls, thinking about um, how you can support people in your community who might need access. So, yeah. And so it's through um, the National Abortion Federation. There's going to be, it's through NCJW is going to have a Jewish fund for abortion access that's going to help to pay for the National Abortion Federation hotline, um, which is the largest in the country. And it supports um, people who have to travel in order to receive their health care, their abortions, um, because there are restrictions in their, in their states. And it also covers the medical costs. Awesome. Well, bye-bye. Annie Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. It's so wonderful to see your face. So, so good to see your faces and hear your voices, Tamar and Zahab and Mimi. And hope we'll, we'll talk more and we'll keep fighting together. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we have come to perhaps later segment of the show, which is our endorsements. We haven't had an episode 
in quite some time. So I am hoping that we're going to have some top quality endorsements to, to carry me through. Um, Mimi, what have you got? So as you guys know, I have been out with a newborn and Yay! part of my newborn experience is listening to audiobooks and watching TV at all hours of day and night. So I want to endorse a an audiobook, but you can read it with your eyes too, if you so choose. <laughs> it's called I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood by Jesse Klein, who's a comedy writer. Just light, beautiful, poignant, all of the feelings. And, you know, definitely had me ugly crying while doing tummy time or something, some nonsense. <laughs> and the other thing I want to endorse is a TV show called Offspring. It's an Australian TV show that's available on Netflix. Just rom-com and lovely and great accents. It's shot in Melbourne, and now I feel I must go to Melbourne and see this city for itself. Two lovely things to um, to enjoy. Mm, those will sound really good. Um, I am adding Offspring to my Netflix queue right now. Um, okay, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? Okay, so I will also do two endorsements because I feel like we're going to be on a roll this month. Um, so... <laughs> One is uh, a piece in The Atlantic. It was on the website in uh, early April, uh, um, and it's called The Other History of the Holocaust. It's by Alex Zeldin, who actually, I think Mimi has endorsed a Twitter thread from yeah. him before. He tweets under the handle Jewish Wonk. And he was basically writing, in light of Russia claiming that it is denazifying Ukraine, and in light of the way President Zelensky has uh, invoked the Holocaust in some of his appeals, especially um, in his appeal to Israeli parliament um, and people reacting in negative and confused ways to both of those things. He provides a really interesting perspective on what Jews from the former Soviet Union, Union understand the Holocaust to have been um, mm. and what uh, the Soviet Union's and later Russia's censorship of Holocaust education was like and and what their World War II narrative is um, and what Soviet Jews do and don't know about this history and how they understand it in relation to their uh, countries of origin. It's a really interesting piece. So we'll link to that. Um, the other thing I want to recommend, and I feel like this is sort of a Tamar thing to do, but I'm recommending a novel, um, <laughs> which I very rarely do, um, called Safekeeping by Jessamine Hope. Um, it came up and it came out in 2015. Have either of you read it? No. It's a book about uh, a group of a, a disparate group of people on a kibbutz over the course of one summer in the early 90s during the Oslo peace process. Um, the main uh, our main entry point into the story, the person we begin with and follow, is this American 19 year old um, who has come to the kibbutz on this sort of personal quixotic quest to return his grandfather's family's brooch, which uh, has been in their family since the 1300s um, and which he rescued from his home during a Holocaust escape um, and which his grandfather had tried to give to a woman on this kibbutz um, in 1947. Um, and this person is trying to make amends for various things by trying to get it back to that same woman, assuming she's still alive on this kibbutz. Um, so that's how we enter. But we also encounter um, uh, an elderly woman who is a kibbutz founder, her son, who's the current lead administrator of the kibbutz, um, and two other volunteers, uh, one who is a Belarusian uh, Christian who has pretended to have a Jewish grandparent so that she could emigrate from Belarus um, and go to Israel as a way station to New York, and another who's a Catholic French Canadian with obsessive compulsive disorder whose family has sort of shipped her off to the kibbutz because it's a place where she can do laundry and escape for in exchange for room and board. Um, and they don't really know what to do with her otherwise. And this disparate cast of characters in this story that is very, very Jewish and not at all about religion, which is, a, I think, a very interesting genre of Jewish book. Um, and it's about intergenerational Holocaust trauma. It's about uh, early Zionism. It's about what we owe our roots It's um, and what we don't owe our roots. Um, and it's really, really well written. Um, 
So as I said, it's by Jessamine Hope, and the title is Safekeeping. Great. Adding that to my list, too. Same. Okay, I have three endorsements. So we um, decided not to talk about the things that have been going on at um, JOFA. Um, If you haven't heard about them, you should Google it. But um, there's an article on Jew School. It's titled, The JOFA Scandal Confirms That All Workplaces Are Toxic. It's by Chanel Dubovsky and Alana Seskin. And um, it's really good. I I do want to say... I don't personally think that all workplaces are toxic, but I think that the what the article is getting at is really that like it is possible for any workplace to be toxic, even one that is explicitly Jewish and feminist. And I think it's important to just like hear that and think about how that happens. And my own experience is like you can experience a workplace as toxic and other people around you can not mm-hmm. have that same experience. Yes. And very important. It's really hard to then parse like what happens if someone it, it is very possible for someone to be being harassed, as it was clearly the case in Jofa, and other people to be like, I'm not being harassed. <laughs> I don't see a problem here. And I just think like Jewish organizations have a lot of thinking to do about how to ensure the safety and integrity of employees at their organizations. And yeah, I just thought this was uh, an article that looked at it from a really interesting and important angle. Then I just finished reading um, a nonfiction book called American Baby by a woman named Gabrielle Glazer. It's about the adoption industry in the United States, and it specifically follows a Jewish, two Jewish teenagers in the 50s in New York, who both of their parents are um, Viennese immigrants and they meet and fall in love and she gets pregnant and they're not married and they're in fact too young to get married and their parents don't like each other. So because Roe v. Wade was not allowed and um, also because they really were in love and they wanted to get married, they wanted to have the baby. So she was sent to a Jewish home for unwed mothers where um, she gave birth to the baby and the baby was taken and put into foster care. And even though she and her boyfriend, eventually husband, fought for two years to get their custody of their baby, ultimately the baby was put for adoption and a Jewish couple in the Bronx adopted the baby. And 50 years later, a 23andMe test connected this baby to his mother who had gone on to marry her boyfriend and have three children with him. And it looks in, it kind of looks at the whole story. It's like really incredibly well written, talks about this particular family and also just like all of the things that were going on in adoption and foster care kind of through this time. My favorite little detail is that the the man who grew up and ultimately did a 23andMe test that helped him find his biological family. Part of the reason that he wanted to have a 23andMe test is because he had a darker complexion and he thought he might be Spartac. And he really wanted to be Spartac so that he could eat kidney oat on Pesach. <laughs> that is such an amazing it's bit so of backstory. Funny. <laughs> he was not Spartac, spoiler. <laughs> um, but he did find his whole family. So anyways, um, it's a really, really excellent book. And I really recommend it. And the last thing that I want to um, recommend is a little bit more fun. And I maybe have recommended it before, but I'm recommending it again because there's a new season. Couples Therapy is a show on Showtime. It is an uh, an Israeli woman who is a couples therapist. And you see her actually in sessions with couples who are having like very intense things happening in their marriages. And she is so good at her job. And the show is so interesting. Like each episode is half an hour long and I watch it with my partner and we like watch a 30 minute episode and then we like turn it off and have like a 30 minute conversation about Mm -hmm. it. It's not trash TV. Like it's actually super smart and interesting and helps me to think about relationships and marriage in new ways. But it is also like watching people have therapy and like reality TV. So I don't, if any of that appeals to you, go get it. There's now three seasons and they're all like really outstanding. So couple therapy. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much 
for listening. Um, and thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. He's got quite uh, the job cut out for him this month. Um, if you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page um, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just choose Talking in Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to make sure that we can keep bringing you episodes every month. Mimi, so glad you're back. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Zahava, thank you so much. I so appreciate every conversation that we get to have. And I loved recording a couple of quasi one-on-ones with you during Mimi's leave. (laughs) Though we really did miss you, Mimi, but it's always fun to talk to you tomorrow. All right. Well, we'll see you all next month.